I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie, I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Seville Golf Training Facility at Stanford University. Varsity Golf. Somebody just corrected me as to what the t- exact title is. I've got a couple architects going to have a uh, lively discussion about golf courses that were built in a certain era and you know what to do with them, and then we're going to get to some questions. But I'm joined by Jay Blasey, who's a second-time guest, and uh, Brett Hochstein, with uh, Brett Hochstein Design, golf design. You got rid of the golf. I did, just Hochstein Design, uh, shorter, cleaner. Very good, yeah. little alliteration almost, but it's not it's an alliteration. Just a little rhyme, I guess. I'm off to a hot start. So, we're, <laughs> so for anybody that didn't get where we are, we're at the Stanford Golf Practice Facility, and they've got a, uh, a lengthy name that I've botched. So, um, today uh, we're going to do a podcast about, you know, kind of uh, the dark ages of golf and the courses that we've got all over the place and kind of what to do with them as, as the kind of, you're seeing a, a condensing of golf where a lot of golf courses are closing, some good, some bad. And, um, you know, there's certainly a lot of great courses, but there's also some that leave a lot to be desired with the architecture, the, the design, and, and overall the enjoyment of playing them. So, you know, got these two experts here, so hopefully I don't do much of the talking. And, uh, you know, first I wanted to talk about, you know, kind of what these courses are, when they were designed, and, and how they were, you know, how they were built. So, you know, Jay, you want you want to kick it off? Well, I think uh, when we talk about the the dark ages, we're often referring to the the time you know you could pick a starting point, but somewhere maybe from the fifties to the nineties, uh, or or more primarily from the fifties to the eighties, and oftentimes it'd be golf courses that. For those of us who love golden age architecture and, and some of the, the principles that go with it, these golf courses were built and feature a lot of different elements that don't contain a lot of those same principles, but maybe more importantly contain a lot of artificial elements, whether that's uh, artificial mounding or they've created water features, whether those are lakes or waterfalls, heavy on landscaping lots of earth moving and whatnot. Perhaps the other big thing is just due to advances in technology, whether that's uh, and earth moving equipment and turf grass technology, all of a sudden these golf courses started going to areas where golf wouldn't naturally occur. So swamps and deserts and mountainsides uh, and, and sites that weren't naturally conducive. So now all of a sudden you're, you're using the 
you're moving lots of earth, you play a hole, then you get on your cart path and drive a quarter mile, and then you go play the next hole and whatnot. So for, for those of us who love those principles, that, that period of time that we refer to as the Dark Ages is, is one that we'd love to forget or do our best to undo. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, sort of the reason that it got to that point was that uh, we had all this new technology, big machines, uh, advances in maintenance and agronomy where we could be greener, you know, have faster speeds, uh, certain heights of cut and all that. And people got really enamored for these uh, these uh, you know, new features because they didn't have them before. And instead of doing the right things with it, such as Alistair McKenzie always talked about the bulldozer and you know what great things it could possibly do, well, there really wasn't, uh, you know, due to say the depression and wartime and all that, there's not much lineage or connection from the golden age all the way to the guys picking it back up in the 60s. So, there isn't necessarily that sort of thought to say, let's use this for good and for artistry and for you know making conditions that are fun versus just aesthetically pleasing. And that's uh, kind of the direction it all went and uh, what the way it was marketed and the way the public sort of ate it up, I guess. I think the, I think the big, one big shift that occurred as well is if you think back to the early 1900s, when golf courses were created, Typically, it was a group of people getting together for the love of golf, and they had a common interest, and they set out to build a golf course because they were interested in golf, and they'd go find an appropriate site. Typically, they'd go search for the right land that had good soils and was gently rolling. During this period we refer to as the Dark Ages, some of that changed, and the purpose for building a golf course changed. So now, somebody has a housing development, so the golf course is really the engine to sell houses, or vice versa, we're building the resort, a hotel, so the, the golf course is the carrot to fill the hotel rooms. And when the focus or the reasoning behind the golf course existing changed, some of the priorities changed as well in terms of the architecture. It's, it's interesting. I'm reading The Links by Robert Hunter, and he talks about how the land for golf, like if, if a club doesn't, didn't buy the appropriate amount of land, the land price would go up so much after they built the course because then the housing would come in and then you know the model changed to where it was housing first golf course second which you know detriment to the golf and you know long term it might be a detriment to the housing also as we as we kind of saw with um you know the the you know consolidation sorry happened but and i'm curious it's something that brett touched on was the the stop in ideas like not very often does a an industry go through like a almost 20 year period where ideas and the flow of ideas stop and and it it had to be very crippling because you saw there's the no real connection there's very few connections from architects in the 50s to Alistair McKenzie Um, you know one would be Robert Trent Jones was connected to Stanley Thompson, who was connected to Alistair McKenzie. And that'd be one, but there weren't many. Most of them spawned then from Robert Trent Jones, right? 
Yeah, for the most part. Uh, you could also say uh, Jack Fleming came from McKenzie, but uh, his, his mark was fairly limited. Um, I cannot think to I think I think the lineage point is a good one, and, and you know, relating to the depression and the war and, and and how that impacted things. I I would I may disagree that there was a a stop in ideas. Mm -hmm. I think maybe priorities shifted. If you look uh, at golf courses built shortly after the war, I think the guiding principle was functionality. You know, and and you know we're worried about costs, and so how do we build something just super efficiently as opposed to necessarily strategically? Mm -hmm. uh, so it may not be the same idea, but mm -hmm. I don't know that there was a complete and total stop of ideas. Yeah, and and as we evolve into the '60s, '70s, and '80s, there were all sorts of ideas. Many many who love golden age golf might just not like those ideas. You know, well, the idea of adding lakes and adding waterfalls and adding flower beds and mounting, those were ideas. There's but, a rise in popularity of professional golf also. So that could be part of it where they started to think we need to really, you know, the, the great player all of a sudden was the forefront focus of golf, like Ben Hogan, you know, and how do you challenge a guy that, it, and it, it wasn't the right way to challenge, but they thought, you know, lakes and making them go over, but it made it just insufferable for a regular player. Um, so how many of these courses are still kind of out there? And, 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 and I think moving forward, what, do you, what can be done with, with these golf courses as we look at, you know, this architecture and golf is moving in a different direction from these courses? And, you know, they're going to need updates with, you know, when irrigation systems come up. Like, what can we do with these, with these golf courses? Well, the non-political answer is uh, too many. Um, and I think I'd probably say for as far as public golf and accessible golf goes, it's the majority of courses. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really had a lot to do with uh, in the shaping of our golf culture in general in this country. Uh, just the focus on riding instead of walking, uh, keeping track of your score, and uh, just wanting to play courses that the, the, the pros are playing, not necessarily thinking about your own game. Uh, and what was the second part of that? And, you know, what can be done with them? I, I shouldn't have asked so many questions. Well. Can they be improved for you know low cost, or do do they need to be you know completely overhauled? Like, what could you do with a you know a, a residential course that say has only got you know limited corridor space? So that's that's the one. one where it's a, a big challenge. And I was going to say it's really site specific, mm -hmm. uh, but you reference where it's really narrow corridors and the routing, which I'd say routing and greens. Contouring; those are the two most impactful parts of design. And when the routing is compromised with that and limited, you're already really up against it. And so, is the cost of going through and making each individual whole, you know, interesting and compelling? Is that going to make the course good enough and interesting enough to? outweigh the cost, I'm not totally sure. There are other examples, though, where 
the housing doesn't quite as limited or the land doesn't limit it. Um, one example I thought off the top of my head was a course called the Coyote Club uh, in Southeast Michigan that I grew up nearby. It was built in the late 90s. It's got you know all the, the mounding, the pretty generic bunkering, not a lot of interest. Uh, I mean, you find yourself on hole 12 and you're like, I'm kind of bored. I should go stop a car break and get a beer. Uh, but it's on a pretty nice, gentle piece of ground, uh, mix of land. It's half open, half kind of in the woods, so you can kind of go in and out of it. That's the kind of example where you know you could easily fill some ponds, maybe reroute it, uh, rebuild all the greens and bunkers, and come up with something pretty interesting you know, for not that exorbitant of a cost. I think the We've touched up a little bit on some of the issues that are in play, and Brett made a comment earlier, which I think is critical for everybody to understand, and that is that as it relates to golf and golf courses, it's 100% site-specific. So um, the right solution at, even even in the same market, you know, we'll take your, your Chicago, even two golf courses in Chicagoland, the the market could be drastically different from from one to another, and therefore the solution, the, the best possible solution could be drastically different from one to the other, even in the same market. Um, to, to Brett's point, I think the potential for improvement is largely based upon the land and the, the constraints that were placed on it. So housing is a key constraint, road crossings, uh, you know, the, the routing of the golf course, full-length concrete cart paths. The, you, you touched on earlier, Andy, that they're going to need improvements. You know, golf courses, just in order to survive long-term, you know, just like your house, you need to reinvest. And so the irrigation system oftentimes needs to be redone. That's your biggest single investment. So if and when it's time to redo the irrigation system, that's a great time to look at is is there anything else that we should be doing? Well, is now the time to do bunkers and greens or to change anything else around? And if you have a situation where you have a great piece of ground, but the layout that's on it just isn't very special, doesn't take advantage of the features very well, the natural features of the land, and it's due for infrastructure uh, investment, that's the right time to get in and, and take a new look and see, could we uh, serve, the, serve the community better by creating something that relates and is more fun. The other thing is we know that contraction is going to occur. So there might be an opportunity in a number of places where you've got 18 or 27 holes now that they end up being better served as a 9-hole facility, a 12-hole facility, something different, where maybe you take the good land and, and reserve it for golf and the other can become housing or it can become a park or open space or something else and, and soccer you can, fields you can kill two birds with one stone mm -hmm. that's i mean i think that's the thing i more i've gotten into this and more i've traveled is like you know the dearth of bad options for the public versus good options is it's it's frightening like you know like you go to i go to a city like i i play in chicago and like there's really only like five public golf courses that I would like actually enjoy going playing. And I play those five all the time when I go play public golf. But like, you know, so many of them, I've, once I've seen about eight holes, I'm like, 
get me out of here. I don't want I don't want to do this. And so many of them are constricted by like I mean like car paths always stick out to me. Like it, it's just like it's hard to almost take a photo without getting car path in it at some of these places they cut down in the middle of the fairway. But where would you say, you know, and I know it's all site specific, but it, is it inside 50 yards if you, if you had a limited budget where you could you do the most you know create the most interest for the most bang for your buck say somebody had you know budget to do a little bit of work where where would you focus the most on around the green that's that because that is where um, a lot of these golf courses during that period of time are very one-dimensional you're nine times out of ten it's an aerial shot if you miss the green you're punished you're either in rough or a bunker and in those positions your only uh, shot out is a sandwich right so uh, your approach shot is repetitive all through the entire round and then your recovery shot is repetitive so by simply redoing green complexes you can introduce strategy you can introduce variety you can have uh, shots that you can land the ball short and feed the ball into the green, or you can feed it in from the side, or you can have a backstop. You can have short grass around the greens, and now you can use you know, the putter all the way up to a hybrid and everything in between. So you can add so much more strategy there. Uh, so if you only had one place to spend your money, that's it. To, to Brett's point earlier, even that might not cross the threshold if the routing is totally screwed up and you've got uh, yeah, a hole where you play out 280 yards and then turn right and go at a 100 degree angle and go the wrong way, you know. Uh, but the bang for your bucks at the green complex in my life. Brett, what, what do you think are some, you know, to go along with like greens, but what are some other like of the most important design features that create like, you know, kind of like a sustainable golf model? And playable, you know, obviously fun, but like outside of, you know, interesting greens, what would you say are some of the you know most important parts of design to creating a place that's really fun to play for the public and, and you know you can get people around and that kind of. I think well yeah definitely uh, the greens and then going backwards from there, um, uh, creating more width is uh, is one way to do it. Um, you know, less uh, sort of maintain rough. Um, I'm not, not a big fan of maintaining rough, really. I'd rather just be more short grass. Uh, makes it more interesting, and uh, you know, to the point you bring up, it uh, helps get people around faster. It helps people enjoy the game a bit more. Now, even if they're not necessarily thinking about which side of the fairway to be on to gain the advantage, you know, they're, they're getting around and they're having a good time as opposed to hacking it out under a tree and, you know, some deep line, rough, or whatever. Uh, thinking about bunkers in interesting ways. Uh, just so that they're... For the mid-handicapper, making them sort of think and taking on challenges. Uh, if you step up onto a tee and you go to address the ball and then you kind of step back and think, well, wait a second, should I be doing this? I think that's a great way to uh, engage the golfer and make them you know, have fun, in my yeah. opinion. Um, it's like, yeah, I think it, it's so important always to 
you know, not forget like the thrill of golf for everybody, you know, like the high handicapper still wants to feel the challenge of taking it over a bunker and, you know, it's, uh, it's, but then you also have to weigh that with like challenging and that's like, I think placement of bunker. How do you guys go about placing bunkers? Cause I've read where some architects do it formulaically and it's like, you know, it's 280 yards. We're going to put a bunker right here. And some guys just throw them out there or want to say, I just put them where it should be. You know, do you, well, I wanted to follow up or, or, or piggyback on what you guys were just talking about earlier in terms of, um, you know, still providing a challenge to somebody, but can you do it in a, in a way that uh, is more sustainable? So if you look at many of those golf courses built during that period of time, you might have a cluster of five or six bunkers all in one grouping mm-hmm. in a landing area, right? And then you look at it. One simple thing is to say, okay, well, of that giant, you know, 60-yard area that's all sand and broken up into six bunkers, there's only a five-yard area that's actually impacting the strategy of the hole. Mm-hmm. If you can get rid of the other stuff, uh, now you've simplified the maintenance practices, you've maintained or enhanced the actual strategic value of it. So those are some of the little things you can go look at an existing golf course and say, hey, these are ways that we can improve it for everyday play. That's it. A course in Chicago did that. They took out, like, uh, it's called Harborside. They took out, like, a un- it, I mean, they removed probably about 60% of the bunkers. I think that if you if you were to do an inventory of golf courses built in the 1980s, you could probably reduce the sand on 90% of those courses by at least 50% without having negative without having a negative impact on strategy and maybe having a positive impact on strategy. Well, and pace of play. Oh, maintenance. Like getting yeah. getting them around. It, it, that's a more sustainable. You can get more rounds out. You know, yeah. people are going to play more when they play faster, and then also the maintenance side of things. As I, I, I was at Ballyneal and they have that 1.5 acre putting green and uh, I was trying to do the maintenance in my head of that and it was an astounding number. Robot mowers. Andy. Yeah. Robot mowers. We need robots. <laughs> do they have They're them? They're coming. I don't know if they have them at Ballyneal. I know that there are yeah, facilities that are starting to use them. They're on their way. Google should start to. <laughs> they probably did it 30 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> we just didn't know about it. Google's, oh, we've had that for years. <laughs> Uh, to your to your point on bunker placement, again, I think it's site specific and architect specific as to how they come about. If you've got a great piece of land that has natural features and natural movement in the land, many times bunkers can evolve based on that natural movement. It's just kind of peeling peeling back whatever vegetation is there and 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 highlighting it. In terms of the whole and strategy of the whole. The closer you get to the green, probably the more uh, the the placement of the bunker is is something that's actually thought out or, or designed or, or uh, uh, crafted as opposed to just finding it naturally. Uh, but I think the days of formulaic bunkering and laying them out at 280 are hopefully past us. Yeah, it's, I don't think following any formula and golf design is a good idea. I think it's just always have an open mind to every single situation. Mm-hmm. Variety. 
That's what keeps people coming back over and over again and throughout the course of a round, if you can offer different challenges, different opportunities for excitement, different opportunities for escape, those are, uh, uh, those are the things that get people excited and keep them coming back. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's uh, you know let's move to a more positive topic. <laughs> we, we got a lot of we got a lot of Twitter questions, so I figured we'll do some we'll do some overrated, underrated, everybody's favorite you know, podcast <laughs> segment, and we'll do some questions. Uh, so I, I fired this off a few minutes ago. So this is uh, um, so how much? This is a good question from Nate Mowry. Um, how much time planning? go into deciding grasses and strains for a golf course when you're building? It's certainly something that's thought out and, and uh, typically it's a team effort. Obviously, if, if it's an existing facility, you're working with the uh, existing superintendent and their team, and then they're usually leaning on um, agronomists or university researchers that are helping them. So um, in a perfect world, you can do that a couple seasons in advance where you could actually do test plots on your own facility. You know, mm-hmm. it's one thing to do to check out test plots somewhere else, but if you can do it on your own property, that's always the, the best advantage. So I think the simple answer is the greater uh, uh, lead time you can have, the better chances for success that you'll have. And the more testing and trials that you can do, the better chance you'll have. Yeah, I mean, I know I have my own preferences uh, going into something that's generally whatever is going to be, you know, play the firmest and fastest, while also, you know, not being a, a total burden or extra cost to maintain. And typically those two things, you know, go hand in hand anyway. Um, so it's just a matter of, you know, finding out if that fits within. You know, the, the client's budget and you know their preferences and with the uh, you know, superintendent's going to be maintaining it. And, you know, I've got a bit of a turf background myself, so I've got uh, you know a little bit of able to discuss it more in depth, which I think helps. And you know, I'm, I've worked in maintenance, so I understand it. And it's uh, like like it to be a two-way thing between the superintendent and uh, you know architect or shaper, whoever's out there. Yeah, I think that collaboration helps probably with the whole project too. So important, it's critical. I I imagine there's like an ownership stake that the 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 more you can get the club or courses staff involved, helps after, right? Yeah, anytime you can get buy-in from the whole team, you know the the idea of of coming up with one common vision, right? That we're always working towards and. there might be different ways to get there, but as long as the vision is the vision and that's what we're all working towards, then uh, that, that's a recipe for success. Um, so we got two Bay Area residents. As we learned this morning, it takes quite a long time to get around the Bay in the morning <laughs> on a weekday. <laughs> What's the uh, most underrated, uh, this is from Connor Doherty, we'll do most underrated Bay Area course, one public, one private. Good question. If I could stretch the Bay Area all the way up into just north of Napa County, I would say Edna Springs. Edna Springs. Nine hole, uh, old property, uh, redone by Doe and the Renaissance guys. 
uh, you know, about 10 or 15 years ago. And it's just, it's really interesting golf. Got some neat greens out there. Uh, it moves around the property in a really great way, just in and out of certain aspects of it. And it's just really, it fits the site context, the, the, the area. Mm -hmm. Uh, so well, I, they, they, their cart barn is an old refurbished uh, uh, barn from you know, the property, whatever, it was a cab ranch or whatever it was, and just there's that sort of detail to it. It's, it's just a really special place. Private, of course. Was private, now public. Wow. So, all so get on up there. <laughs> when, when you're out in wine country with the wife, you know, set yeah. up a... <laughs> wine and set, nine. Set up a... <laughs> yeah, wine and nine. Wine and nine. That's a, that's good advice. I need to get up there. It's uh, hopefully it's okay with all the fires and everything. So I think they got away with it, but the drive up there probably kind of depressing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. From a private club standpoint, I don't really know that it's actually underrated or, or off the radar, but uh, in my mind, probably underrated is Meadow Club and and Sean Tully, the super up there, just continues to. Um, help the golf course evolve and uh, Mike DeVries has done a good job up there and so that's continuing to just kind of keep evolving and just keeps getting better and better and better with with time and uh, it's a pretty, good pretty special place when a course gets better over the years you know so often <laughs> you see that opposite <laughs> happen where yeah. the fairways get narrower and the greens get smaller and yeah our architecturally minded superintendents are just they're, they're a treasure. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's uh, all right. Overrated, underrated. The Olympic Club from Connor also. Curious. Hot topic. Uh, overrated, overrated. <laughs> 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 great club, great membership. <laughs> overrated. Um, all right. We'll go with overrated, underrated from Josh Roby. Double dogleg par fives. I'm, we'll th I'm going to throw a caveat in there. So, so long as you can uh, you can see and and you can play the angles, I'll say underrated. If there's trees, you know, if you're if it's a dogleg left, you've got to play around trees, and then the second half goes around trees to the right, so you really can't see or maneuver it. Then I'll say overrated. So it's both. That's. I was trying to figure out how I want to say that, and yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah, to be able to actually take on the dog, that's, that's that's the key. It's kind of like that fourth hole at Bethpage. You know what? There aren't many in the way of the hole. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Trees. Yeah. It's pretty pretty. It's a pretty hole. Yep. Pretty pretty. It's terrible. Um, all right, Philip Johnson, overrated, underrated, the switchback hole. Brett, you gotta go first this one. And by switchback, are we referring to like a, basically? A I think a, I think a, I think it's like a, a fade tee shot, draw second shot, oh, or a draw tee shot. That's oh, what so, I, so I, I, like, I thought. You were actually going like reverse uh, angle where you actually Also, sort of thinking about like the 18th at Lake Chabot, which drops down like 250 feet. It's got a switchback all the way down the fairway. <laughs> I'm thinking yeah. more more conventional, like where something calls for one shot shape, you know, kind of the whole the whole changes okay. in terms yeah, of I would like say that's underrated. Underrated. Amen. Underrated. Yeah. 
I think that's a cool little thought. Crystal. Yeah. Anytime you get angles, uh, anytime you can introduce angles, and it's usually a byproduct of having width. You know, we've already touched on width over and over again today. If you can, if you can have width and take advantage of angles, that creates compelling golf. And encouraging shot shading. Ball we gotta, we gotta, we gotta change the ball to do that. <laughs> Just go straight down. Uh, not <laughs> Curious. Uh, I, this is something I've actually wondered. Is about Olympic Club. You know, they have the fairways historically. You know, that everybody sees it when they host the tournament. That they'll move, they'll dog like one way, but the slope goes the opposite way. What do you, what are you guys' thoughts on, on fairways like that? Like, I don't know what the, the terminology is. Reverse camber. Yeah, yeah, that's reverse camber. I knew it was reverse something. <laughs> yeah. I'd say if, I mean, just going back to the whole variety thing, you know, yeah. if, if used every once in a while, it can be uh, you know, a good thing. You know, doing it 18 times in a row, I don't know if that's interesting or fun. I'm not saying Olympic is that. Um, but done right, yeah, it's, it's, I'd say it's good to sprinkle that every once in a while. I would make two points. Uh, for everyday golfers, I would say it works far better if the hole moves left to right and the land is moving right to left just because 90% of golfers fade or slice the ball so they're hitting into the slope so it becomes more playable. So that'd be one, one point. Um, to, I, I would echo Brett's sentiment that when done in moderation or as a, as a change of pace, it's interesting. The other caveat I'd put on it is if there's enough room to actually let the ball run out. So um, a 20-yard wide fairway and a reverse camber to me is, is not very compelling because you're just going to end up in, in the rough all the time. <laughs> if you actually have enough space to let the ball run out and let it go run 70 yards away, then it's kind of interesting because now you're, you're encouraging people to hug the right side. If they bail out and they miss, they still have a shot, but now it's much longer, so it can, it can add to the strategy. Or just a horrible angle. Yeah. Yeah, and you're going back to shot shaking, you're encouraging hitting a draw or a fade into that slope to try and hold it up there, which is interesting, I think. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, no, I think that's really, I, I, it stimulates, you know, the thought process, that's the key. Get golfers golf. thinking, that's yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. We've got, here's a good, Drew Nedzinski. What are some modern design features? We've talked about a few of them, but we'll get, you each get one. Modern design features that we're going to see more and more with newer courses. Maybe they're like newer features that you're seeing pop up in design that you think should be used more? I'm adapting this question. I don't know. So should you use more? I don't so much. I don't necessarily think it's so much new features. It's just yeah. in, in kind of embracing the past and, and, and it all relates back to kind of sustainable golf. You know? mm-hmm. uh, we, we've touched on many yeah. of them before. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> Short grass and contours. Yeah. Jay, overrated, underrated offensive linemen scoring touchdowns. <laughs> Very underrated. That was a, it was brilliant because it was a backyard backwards pass. It was actually a lateral, 
perfectly executed. Jay is a big Badgers fan, Wisconsin Badgers, so, you know. And we took down the Illini. They took down the Illini. Thanks to an offensive lineman touchdown. He ran for 15 yards. I don't think you can talk. No, I don't. You know, kind of like golf, anytime you can get the ball rolling is a good thing. I think anytime in football you can get a big man running with the ball, underrated. Absolutely, that's fun. <laughs> Gravity has its advantages. <laughs> All right, we'll do uh, we'll do one more. We're kind of on a time crunch because of the traffic here. Um, overrated, underrated, Poana Greens. Overrated in general. Overrated in general. Yeah. What about just embracing the Poe? Once well, you get, I yeah, feel like again, it's all site specific. <laughs> we sound like a broken record when it comes to that, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's no reason that Poa Greens can't be a great surface, mm-hmm. but on balance, you, you don't yeah. see people striving for it off the bat in, <laughs> in general. And they're, the surface itself, as far as rolling the ball, they can be really great, but it almost always they're going to be soft and you know, overly receptive, and it's just... Uh, that's not as interesting as uh, you know, having to think about you know a green that's going to bounce and roll, and you really have to think about where you're going to land it instead. Yeah. And you can achieve that better with bent. And in most cases, you can where there's poa, you can you can manage bent. That's yeah. That's a was it? Is it Wingfoot or one of the courses I used like buys the poa greens that people try and rip out or ripping out. They're like, we'll take it. <laughs> Well, I think the other thing to know about POA is there's, you know, I know just enough about grass to be dangerous, but my understanding is there's so many different strains and lines of it. So when you when you when you use that blanket phrase, the POA that you're talking about in Pennsylvania is different than the POA that you're talking about in California. Yeah. Well, that's the. I mean, there's a reason they're doing that because it's it's really valuable. It's POA that's evolved, like you said, you know, over 80 years, 100 years. And uh, you're just not going to grow that in the nursery. Mm-hmm. So, of course, it has those types of greens nearby down the road, and it's doing a bunch of greens expansions and doesn't have a big enough nursery. They could really use that yeah. to help marry up with uh, the current greens. That's an interesting point. I didn't ever think about it as like green expansion when you have this tough. Well, yeah, if you're expanding greens and you go through the whole process and you're doing all the construction, you, you see them pull the sod off and set it to the side. If you do the green expansion, when you put that sod back, you haven't covered the whole green. You still kind of cover the new wings and everything. So what's the best and most efficient way to make that work? I'm going to just start a sod farm. <laughs> you and Greg Norman. Do, yeah, do it on, on site. Yeah, just do a bunch of them all throughout the country. I'm just going to be buying up little plots of land. You, you, you're evolving into Greg Norman. You can have sod farms and a vineyard. You can have it all. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks for uh, coming on. I uh, appreciate that you guys' time. Sorry it was uh, a little truncated, but it was, uh, hopefully uh, people enjoy the discussion. Appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, glad to be here. All right.